Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. Matthew 3. We're going to look at verses 13 to 17, finishing up the third chapter here of Matthew. Matthew chapter 3, verse 13, hear then the word of the Lord. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. But John tried to stop him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And yet you come to me? Jesus answered him, allow it for now, because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John allowed him to be baptized. When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened before him, or opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming down on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for the gift of your word. We praise you for revealing yourself to us in the baptism of Jesus, in the descent of the Holy Spirit, in the obedience of the Son and of John here. And we praise you, Lord, for speaking to us this morning. We pray that with our Bibles open before us, that you would speak to us clearly, that you would help me to be faithful, to teach what is the intention of Matthew in this passage, and apply it properly to our church family this morning and to our friends who are gathered here. So we ask, Lord, for wisdom. We don't want to lean on our own understanding, but in all our ways, in listening now and in preaching your word, we want to acknowledge you so that you might make our path straight. So do it here, Father. Change our hearts and help us to see in this story a fuller yet biblical and accurate um, significance, the the deeper significance here of Jesus' baptism and the Old Testament story that it brings about. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Nobody really enjoys being a party pooper or raining on another's parade. We don't like doing that. Sometimes we think people like raining on our parade. They don't really like that. Um, It's kind of like a, a, a small pleasure, but deep down they really don't enjoy that. It's true that misery loves company. But it only loves company because of the relief that the company brings to the misery. It's not that they love the misery. It's that the company gives a little bit of relief from the misery that someone else is going through it with them. We love positive people who cheer us up and give us hope, right? Those are the people you like to generally, if you have a choice who to hang out with, you generally choose to hang out with and spend time with people who cheer you up, who help you see things, see the bright side of things, that the cup is half full and not half empty. And we as Christians, we, we are positive because we have hope, right? We have hope in Jesus Christ. And we love to give hope to the hopeless. I mean, don't you love, incur- like when, you, when you're with a discouraged friend or fellow saint and you speak to them and you actually see their souls lifted up, you see them encouraged through the conversation and through your time with them, doesn't that bring joy to your soul? To see them encouraged? To help them feel really strong when they were feeling weak? Well, we love doing that. We love giving hope. But the problem is that we're surrounded by sin and brokenness. The sins of others, so people sin against us and people sin in this world, There's individual sin, there's corporate sin, there's structural sin. There's the, then there's just not even sin, but just the brokenness of the world. The world is broken, our bodies are broken, our relationships are broken. And then the pain and brokenness is not only in our bodies and in the world, it's even in the church. Our church is broken. Our society is broken. There's a lot of sin and the effects of sin everywhere in this world. There's really not a place 
or person that sin hasn't touched in this world. And so goes the brokenness. That's on the outside. Then we talk about sin in our own lives, right? What about the brokenness in here and the brokenness here in my pride and in my arrogance and the brokenness of my own sin and my own temptations and my own failures that when I sin, it actually causes guilt and shame, which tempt me to sin further with the sins of secrecy and hypocrisy, right? And so though we want to give hope to others, the hopelessness and the brokenness of this world on the outside and the hopelessness and the brokenness in our own hearts discourage us. We want to encourage others, but we feel discouraged ourselves. We want to give hope to others, but we feel ourselves wavering in hope and giving into hopelessness ourselves. We want to be positive, but we feel so much of the negativity in the world and in the church and in our lives. And we don't want to be the people who drag others down. We don't like to be those types of people. So here's the question. How do we stay positive and spread true, real, deep, meaningful hope to others without faking it ourselves when we're not really feeling hope in our own lives? Well, Matthew gives us hope in this passage. This this passage doesn't immediately jump out as a passage of hope. It's the baptism of Jesus. And yet, even though it's not immediately obvious, if you just think about the, the phrases Matthew is using, you actually see that there is deep encouragement and rock-solid hope for our souls and for our church in the baptism of Jesus. So let's go to the story, and then we'll go to the verses. So, so the story so far in Matthew, so Matthew, if you think of it as a play or as a movie, who's the main character of Matthew? Who's the main character in the story of the book of Matthew? Jesus is, right? And like any good movie or any good musical play, the main character doesn't come out right away. Generally, right? It's like there's a buildup and there's an anticipation and there's scene one and and there's different songs. And then all of a sudden, the main character enters into the story and into the movie. And so here, the question that is, is going on as you're reading Matthew chapters 1, 1 through 3, 12 is, where is he? You have this big thing about his ancestry, And then you have this birth and Joseph was going to divorce his wife, but then he doesn't. And then they have a baby and the baby is almost killed because Herod wants to kill the baby. So Herod kills a bunch of other babies. And then he he goes up to Nazareth and he's fulfilling all these scriptures. And then the forerunner comes who's prophesied 400 years and 700 years before this time that the Lord is about to step on the scene and you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting. Where is he? Is he going to come or not? And then we enter Matthew 3, 13 to 17. Here is the grand entrance. And in some ways, it doesn't seem so grand, but on deeper reflection, it gets grander as you think about it. The grand entrance of Jesus. Jesus steps onto the scene now in the story. He comes to, where's the story right now? John is baptizing people at the Jordan River. He's baptizing people at the Jordan River. People are coming and they're they're going to a baptism of repentance and they're confessing there. Sins, there's Pharisees and Sadducees coming, and John is saying, you brood of vipers, why are you guys here? Bear uh, productive, fruitful repentance. So John is preaching, he says, there's someone coming after me who's mightier than I. I can't even, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And so now Jesus comes to that story at the Jordan River, which is where Israel was before they entered into the promised land on dry ground, Right? through the Jordan River. So there they are at the Jordan River and John is there and Jesus is there and Jesus shows himself to John and he says, you need to baptize me. Now at this point, John recognizes that he's the Messiah, right? Um, John, if you read the gospel according to John, not written by John the Baptist, but John the Apostle, John, John the Apostle gives us more background to the story. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So, so John knows that Jesus is the Messiah at this point. And so Jesus is coming, the one that John's not even worthy to untie his what? Sandals. And yet Jesus is saying, you need to what? Baptize me. I'm not even worthy to untie your sandals. And you want me to baptize you? I'm a prophet here giving all of these people the business, right? Putting them on notice that they need to repent. I'm preaching this strong prophetic message and I'm wielding the authority of God's word on all these people over them, I'm willing this authority over them with God's word, and you're coming to me to submit to my baptism 
and I'm not even unworthy to tie your shoes? No way. I'm not baptizing you. You need to actually baptize me, John says. I got a better idea. You baptize me because you're far greater than I am. And yet Jesus says, Jesus insists, he won't let up. And Jesus says, this is necessary to fulfill all what? Fulfill all righteousness. This is necessary for us to do so that we would fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? So John listens after giving in. So Jesus is immersed in the water of the Jordan River. And as he comes up out of the water, the heavens open. That doesn't happen often in the Bible. There's only a few times that the heavens open in the Bible. The heavens open, something like a dove comes down, the Holy Spirit comes down and rests on Jesus, and then a voice comes from heaven and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And that's the story of the baptism of Jesus. So if I had to summarize the point here, if, if we're just studying Matthew and we're not going to the Old Testament background, just Matthew, what's the point? The point is God is declaring Jesus as his son. The father is introducing the son. So here's the grand entrance to the story. In comes Jesus and the father finally speaks. So you have the scriptures being fulfilled. You have an angel speaking. You have John the Baptist speaking. You have all these other witnesses to Jesus. And now God himself from heaven. In the final entrance, God himself comes and says, this is my beloved son. In him, I am well pleased. And that's like the, the curtains close. At least that's the, that's the opening song of, of the play. And, and so at that point, you have this grand testimony that Jesus is the son of God, the hero of the story, the king of the Jews, the true king. Okay, so that's the story. That's the main point. God says that Jesus is the king. I think Charles Spurgeon said, Charles Spurgeon had a, had a sermon on this, on verse 17, and he said, the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher. So the father's the one preaching, and his message is, this is my beloved son. In him I'm well pleased. And so here's God speaking now and giving his testimony. So what's the point for us today? Here's the main idea, the main goal for us. The main goal of this sermon for you, for me, to you, to us, is we need to point to hope for everyone by seeing Jesus as God's son. So in the baptism of Jesus, we see hope. So what do we need to do? Parents to children, we need to point them to hope, right? Point to hope for them. Neighbors to our, Christian neighbors to our other neighbors, point them to the hope. What do we need to do to each other when we feel hopeless and discouraged? Point each other to hope. So point to hope for everyone by seeing Jesus as God's son. Now you're saying, okay, we could end the sermon here. I know that Jesus is God's son. What else is new? Well, I want to submit to you that we often misunderstand what God means when he says, or the Son of God, when we read Son of God in Matthew, Mark, and Luke in particular, we often misunderstand. We, we overemphasize the little voice, the little emphasis, and then we underemphasize the main emphasis. So when we think Son of God, what do we typically think of? So Jesus is the Son of God. What do we think? That he's the what? What do we think that means? Anyone want to guess? Redeemer. Redeemer. Anyone else? Messiah. Any other guesses? If Jesus is the son of God and you are not the son of God, what's the difference between us and Jesus? He's what? He's God. So when we think of son of God, we have been trained very well by our confession of faith and by the creeds of the Christian church over many years in the Council of Nicaea, um, solidifying and clarifying for everyone that we believe in this doctrine called the doctrine of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all equally God. How many gods? One God. How many persons? Three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus is not part God. He's not just an exalted human. He is fully God. And so when we read, this is my beloved Son, we typically think that when we hear Son of God, we think Son of God in the Bible means that Jesus is fully God, second person of the Trinity. And that's good theology. That's bad exegesis. That's bad interpretation of the intention of this text. That's like a little hint on the side. That's not the main thing in, in Matthew chapter three. 
When you think son of God in Matthew, I want you to think something different. I'm not saying Jesus isn't God's son, so don't get me wrong. He is God's son. But that's not what you should be thinking when you hear son of God. What I want you to be thinking, some of you said it was Messiah, but even more than that, I want to give you two other things to be thinking about. But to do that, and to to really point everyone else to hope, we need to see hope ourselves. So I have three points here. We need to see we need to see three things in Jesus, okay? We need to see three things in Jesus. And the first thing we need to see in Jesus is found in verse is is found in the question that John asks. So go back to verse 13 or 14. John tried to stop Jesus saying, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me. Jesus, so um, why should I baptize you? What's the answer? Why does Jesus need to get baptized? John doesn't know why. He doesn't want to do it. But what's Jesus' answer? To, to what? Fulfill all righteousness. So here's point number one. Okay, if you're going to point to hope for everyone by seeing Jesus as God's son, you need to see in Jesus the fulfillment of all righteousness. You guys see that there? You need to see in Jesus the fulfillment of all righteousness, verses 13 to 15. What does it mean by righteousness? It means doing what is right, doing the right thing, conforming to the will of God. Now, why should you conform to the will of God? Because it's right. Well, who says what's right? Well, God does. But what's God's standard of right? God himself. Whatever upholds the glory of God, whatever upholds and displays the glory and goodness and beauty of God, that's what, right, that's what is right, and that's what righteousness is. And anything that belittles or dis- diminishes the glory and display and beauty of God is unrighteous. Okay, so Jesus wants to fulfill all righteousness by obeying God, by conforming to his will, to uphold and display his glory. But what does it mean to fulfill righteousness? When you see fulfill in Matthew, sometimes it means a straight-up command, like, Micah 5, 2, a scepter will come out of what city? Where will Jesus be born? In what? Bethlehem. So there's a prophecy. The king will come from Bethlehem. Where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. Prophecy fulfilled, right? So when we think of prophecies fulfilled, we generally think that's how it's fulfilled. A prediction, you know, who's going to win the NCAA tournament this year or who's going to win, you know, whatever sport. So you could predict something and then if it happens, your prophecy was, quote unquote, fulfilled, that's sometimes the way fulfillment is used. It's not the only way Matthew uses fulfillment. I mean, Jesus said, or Matthew said, out of Egypt I called my son, and that fulfills when Jesus came out of Egypt. That was a fulfillment. That wasn't even a prophecy. That wasn't a prediction. So fulfillment is sometimes not merely just the thing happening, but it's the completion of the trajectory, or it was suggesting something, or it's pointing forward to something, like God's son coming out of Egypt, and Jesus fulfills the picture. He completes the picture. He completes the thing that's anticipated. So here, Jesus is going to fulfill all righteousness. Why does Jesus want to get baptized? Because he wants to obey who? God. Why does John end up baptizing Jesus? Because he wants to obey God. They fulfill righteousness by obeying God. And notice, they're both fulfilling righteousness here. Jesus doesn't say it's for me, only he says, he says um, in verse 15, allow it for now because this, in this way, this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, John's not the main character, but Jesus needs John to baptize him for them to fulfill all righteousness. This, is, this baptism doesn't fulfill all righteousness. It's one, of the, it's one of the points of things Jesus must do to fulfill all righteousness. In Matthew 5, 17, it says Jesus fulfills the law, covenant, and the prophets. So he's gonna obey here in the baptism. He's gonna obey with the rest of his life. And in that, he will fulfill all righteousness for us. For us. Are we righteous? What does Romans 3 say? There is none righteous, no, not one. And yet we will be judged on our righteousness. But we don't have righteousness. But Jesus fulfills all righteousness for us. That's why he got baptized. So the song lyric says, My hope is built on nothing less but Jesus' blood and righteousness. Not just his death by itself, but the death being part of this bigger picture of his righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. That's the sweetest love for God I ever feel. I dare not trust my sweetest love for God, the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. So what should we do? If Jesus obeyed God, just a brief application here, we'll move to point two. Obey God. Christians, non-Christians, you are called, you are commanded, you are required to obey God. If you're a Christian who hasn't been public with your Christianity, 
Just like Jesus got baptized, you need to get baptized, though it's a different baptism here in, um, in, in Matthew 3. And then what do we need to do as disciple makers? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then teach them to do what? To teaching them to obey or observe everything. So not only should we obey as a church family, what do we teach each other? What do we expect from each other? What do we expect from others? That we will obey. We expect obedience. We require obedience and repentance for disobedience, which is another act of obedience when you're repenting. All right, so this command or this is... This baptism is part of fulfilling all righteousness. But is that all it means? Just get baptized and that, that's, that's why he got baptized, just to obey a command to get baptized? Is that all this means, the baptism? No, I want to suggest no. It actually is deeper than that. And that's our second and third point, okay? So if we're going to point to hope for everyone by seeing Jesus as God's son, we need to move to the second and third point. How does Jesus fulfill all righteousness in his baptism? Two more ways. Point number two. Now, before I tell you point number two, I know your pens are ready, but let me just say, we're going we're gonna to meditate on this one phrase. So the heavens open, spirit comes down, voice comes from heaven and says, and this is what we're going to focus on for the rest of our sermon. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. When you hear that phrase, when you hear that phrase, you should be hearing all kinds of Old Testament echoes. It's almost like if you listen to a song and you could be like, what instruments were in that song? Like, oh, I heard the drums. Oh, I heard the bass guitar. Oh, I heard the piano. Or like, you could start to, you know, you could hear a song or sometimes songs sample other songs and you could hear, you could hear a piece of it in there. You could hear an echo of another song in the song. You could point out sounds or phrases. When you hear, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, there's this crash. Crash is probably not the good thing with sound and music, but there is a cacophony, maybe that's a better word, of sounds that's bringing out things from the Old Testament that if you were a Jew in that time and you were saturated with the Old Testament scriptures, you would hear like four or five different sounds going on. You're like, wait, this is my beloved son in whom I will please. That sounds like this. Wait, that sounds like Isaiah. That sounds like Ezekiel. That sounds like, like uh, Jeremiah. That sounds like Genesis. That sounds like Psalms. And these different sounds come to your ear if you're a Jew. Is Jesus really the king of the Jews? Matthew's whole gospel is about, yes, Jesus is the king of the Jews. Yes, he is God's son. Yes, he is the Messiah. Yes, you should bow down and worship him. Yes, you should trust him. Yes, you should be his disciple. And yes, you should make disciples of him to all ethnic people groups. That's what Matthew's about. He's trying to prove to you that Jesus is the Old Testament king that was prophesied, the son. So do you hear these echoes? We're going to point out a few of these echoes And it comes really in two main points, which is my second and third point. So what do you need to see in Jesus? Point number two, see in Jesus or see in God's son your restoration from unrighteousness. Your your restoration from unrighteousness. So point number one is see in Jesus the fulfillment of your righteousness. Point number two is see in God's son Jesus your restoration from your what? unrighteousness. Now, where do you see that? PJ, it's just, this is, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Why do you see our restoration from our unrighteousness in Jesus's baptism? How does that even make sense? Well, go to verse 17b again. I already said, this is my beloved son. Let's go to the second part of it. In whom I am well pleased. I'm going to have you keep saying this because I want you to, to hear the echo. Okay. In whom I'm well pleased. That phrase, in whom I'm well pleased, is from Isaiah 62, verse 4. So turn there, if you want. Keep your finger in, in, in Matthew. We're going to do a little bit of Old Testament work today. Isaiah 62, 4. And if you don't turn there, don't worry. I'll just read it to you, and you could pay attention that way. But it might be easier if you see it. Isaiah 62, verse 4 says about Jerusalem, Zion, the city of God that was destroyed, that was going to be destroyed in Isaiah's time, was going to be destroyed by Babylon. In the destruction of God's city, here's what God says about the city. I'm going to restore my city. In verse 4, he says about the city of Jerusalem, Zion, you will no longer be called deserted and your land will not be called desolate, even though I destroyed you. Instead, you will be called what? My delight is in her and your land married for Yahweh what? Your, Yahweh delights. Now, that's the same Greek word as, that's used in the Greek Old Testament as in Matthew. Your, for Yahweh is well pleased in you and your land will be married. 
So here's a, in you, I am well pleased. This is, now not all echoes are the same volume. Some are background noise, some are more prominent. This one's a little bit more background, but it's still here, I think. God is well pleased with Jerusalem and he's gonna restore them because he's gonna destroy them for their sin of breaking the law covenant of Moses. He's gonna destroy them for their sins. He kicks them out of the land. He destroys the city of Jerusalem. But one day he's going to restore Jerusalem because in Jerusalem he is well pleased. He's gonna save them. It says if you read the rest of the chapter, he's going to redeem them, okay? So here you have the redemption and the restoration of Jerusalem, of Zion. And it says later on, if you're already in Isaiah 62, I might as well have you read this verse too. Go to Isaiah 62, verse 10. It says at the very end of verse 10, raise a banner for the peoples. Look at verse 11. Look, the Lord has proclaimed to who? To the ends of the earth. Say to your say to daughter Zion, look, your salvation is coming and his wages are with him and his reward accompanies him and they will be called the holy people. So it's not just the city, it's the people. The people of Jerusalem, the people of God in Jerusalem, in Zion, will be restored and all the nations will see it. That was the hope for the Old Testament. So if you're a Jew in John's time and you're waiting for your king, the king of the Jews, to save you guys, and then here he comes and he is representing Zion, when Zion is gonna be restored, because in Zion, in Jerusalem, he's well-pleased, and now in Jesus, he's well-pleased, there's a connection here. But there's a deeper connection here. Not only the vindication of Zion, the holy people, But let's go back to the first phrase of Matthew 3. Don't turn there, but this is my, what kind of son? This is my beloved son. Now that is in Jeremiah. So you're in Isaiah, just turn to the right. Right after Isaiah is Jeremiah. Turn to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31. This is my beloved son. You have the same phrase here, my beloved son or the beloved son to me in Jeremiah 31, verse 20. But it's a different son, or is it? Look at Jeremiah 31, verse 20. Isn't Ephraim a what to me? A precious son to me. Now, another way you could translate, translate that in the Greek is, isn't Ephraim my beloved son? A delightful child. Whenever I speak against him, I certainly still think about him. Therefore, my inner being yearns for Ephraim, my beloved son. I will truly have compassion on Ephraim, my beloved son. This is the Lord's declaration. So who is God's beloved son? Ephraim. If Jerusalem is God's beloved son in Isaiah, he's gonna restore them. What's Jeremiah 31 about? What do we have in Jeremiah 31? Don't we have the new covenant in Jeremiah 31? Where God is going to restore Israel. Jeremiah 31, 31. To 34, he's going to give them a new covenant. He's going to give them new hearts. He's going to write his law on their hearts so that they will walk in his ways. In Jeremiah 31, verse nine, he says, look at Jeremiah 31, nine. Jeremiah 31, nine, the very end of it, it says, I am Israel's father and Ephraim is my first, firstborn. In Jeremiah 31, who, who is the beloved son of God? Ephraim. Who, what is Ephraim? That's the capital of the northern tribes, the, the, of the 10 tribes of Israel. Ephraim stands for Israel. Israel is God's beloved son. Does that remind you of any sermon we did recently in in Matthew? Remember Matthew 2.15? Out of Egypt, I called my son. And then Rachel was doing what? Weeping for the massacred babies. Where's that Rachel passage from? Jeremiah 31.15. That's five verses earlier than this beloved son passage. Clearly, as Matthew's writing chapters two and three, Jeremiah 31 is where? It's in his mind as he's writing the story. Rachel is weeping. Jesus is out of Egypt. He's the son of God. Ephraim is the son of God. Ephraim is the beloved son. And here Jesus is coming out of the water and he's the beloved son. Jesus is recapitulating, reenacting, living out and completing, fulfilling the story of Israel. Just think about this for a second. Don't even look at your Bibles. Just let me, let me go over the story of Matthew with you again. Okay, look up here for a second. And I want you to put your, your Jewish ears on, your Old Testament ears on. I'm gonna tell you the story of Matthew. Here it is. A bunch of babies were killed. Just think about this. A bunch of babies were killed, right? God takes his son out of Egypt. They go through water. They enter into a wilderness to be tempted. They receive, they go to a mountain to receive the law. And there's a lawgiver who gives them the law. What's that the story of? Moses and Israel. But I just told you the story of Matthew. The babies were slaughtered. He came out of Egypt, right? He came out of Egypt. He went through the water in baptism. 
He's about to fight, face Satan in the wilderness. He's going to go up onto a mountain and preach the sermon on the mount. And he's going to quote all these. You have heard it said to you, Old Testament, but I say to you, New Testament. What do you have in Matthew 1 through 7? You have the recapitulation of the story of Israel in who? In Jesus, the beloved son. So when God comes to this baptism and says, this is my beloved son, and Ephraim, Israel is God's beloved son, do you see that if Israel is going to be restored, where is it going to be restored? In who? In Jesus. Jesus, see in Jesus our restoration from our unrighteousness. Because in our unrighteousness, we are cut off. We are exiled. We are damned. We are judged for our sins. And yet in Jesus, God's beloved son, Israel will be restored. Because Jesus is the true Israel. You see that there? Okay, so Jesus is fulfilling true Israel here. He's reenacting and living out the story that Israel was supposed to live. Israel went to the wilderness and they failed. Jesus succeeds. And we'll talk about that next week or in two weeks when we go through Matthew chapter four or in three weeks because it's Easter in two weeks. Okay, but we still haven't answered this question. Why was Jesus baptized in a baptism of water and repentance? Why was he baptized by John? Why was he baptized? Here are some common yet insufficient answers. Jesus was baptized as an example for us. Now, is Jesus an example for us? Yes or no? Yes. Yes. That's insufficient. It's good though, insufficient. Jesus was baptized to obey God. True or false? True, but still not specific enough. Jesus was baptized to identify with sinners, to identify with his people. That's good, and that's true too. Or Jesus did it so that God could publicly say, this is my son, now his public ministry is about to start. It's to launch him off to public ministry. That's true. Jesus was baptized because um, he was affirming that John is the actual legitimate forerunner. So by Jesus getting baptized by John, he's saying that John was legit. Is that true? Yes, that's true as well. And those are why Jesus got baptized. But if you stop there, you don't really deal with the question. Still, why was he baptized in a baptism of repentance? And why is that a hard question for us? Because Jesus never what? Sinned. You don't repent unless you sin. But Jesus never sinned. Why is he being baptized, they're going to the river to be baptized, repenting and confessing their sins. Why is Jesus doing this? Why is he doing this? You're right, he never sinned, but think about this. Does he belong in a water where sinners are to be, to be repenting? Does he belong in that water as a sinless person? No. So why is he there? Here's another question. Does he belong on a cross, hanging, cursed, in darkness? under the wrath and judgment of God as a sinless person? Does he belong on the cross? No. No. But he was there. Why? Because he's identifying with us, yes, but he's also doing something for us. In the cross, he dies for us. In the baptism, he repents for us. Jesus repents for us. He was repenting for us perfectly as part of all the righteousness that he has to fulfill for his people. All right, PJ, maybe you're going too far. Why does Jesus need to repent for us? Well, I'm not saying Jesus sinned. He never sinned. But Jesus is living out the story of who? Of us and of Israel, the people of God, right? Now, you guys are still in Jeremiah 31, right? I didn't have you turn out yet. You're still in Jeremiah 31? Jeremiah 31, Jesus is Ephraim, my beloved son, right? But look at 21 through 23. He's fulfilling 21 through 23 here. What is God telling Israel to do? Set up road markers for yourself, establish signposts, keep the highway in mind, the way you have traveled. And what's the command to Israel? Return, virgin Israel, return to these cities. How long will you turn here and there, faithless daughter? For the Lord creates something new in the land, a female will shelter a man. So what is he telling Israel to do? To what? Turn back. What's another word for turn back? Repent, Israel. My beloved son, repent. And what's going to happen if you repent? Verse 23. This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel says. When I restore their fortunes, I restore them from their unrighteousness. When I restore their fortunes, they will once again speak this word in the land of Judah and in, this, and its, in its cities. May Yahweh bless you. And what are they called? May the Lord bless you. What, what is Israel called? What kind of settlement? Say it out loud. What kind of settlement? Righteous settlement. Holy mountain. 
When they repent and turn back, they are going to be called what? Righteous. Who's fulfilling all righteousness? Jesus. What is Israel supposed to do? Repent. What does Jesus do in the baptism of repentance? He repents for his people. That is Jeremiah 31. He is repenting for us. Jesus is Ephraim. He is Israel. He is the beloved son of God. He fulfills Israel's hopes and calling and blessing to the nations. He fulfills their restoration by fulfilling their repentance. Jesus repents for us. If you're not a Christian, can you just listen here for a second? Some people think Christianity means do a bunch of good things and you'll become a Christian. That's not what a Christian is. Christianity is not do righteousness on your own and be righteous enough so that if you're good enough and if you're righteous enough, you'll be a Christian. That is a lie from the devil. Christianity is you are unrighteous. Jesus fulfills all righteousness. Trust in Jesus, not yourself. That's the message of Christianity. So if you're not a Christian and you're saying, I could never be a Christian, I'm not good enough, you just misunderstand Christianity. It's not, you, you can't be a, you can't not, you're not blocked from being a Christian because you're not good enough. You're blocked from being a Christian because you don't understand who Jesus is. Namely, the one who fulfills all righteousness for you. Not demands it of you in order to become saved. So by being baptized, he is, why is this good news that he's baptized for us and repents for us? Why is that good news? Do you, here's a question. Do you perfectly repent? You know what Leviticus 4, 27, 28 teaches us? that we have unintentional sins that we don't even know we do. And if you have sins that you don't know what you do, guess what? Guess what you haven't done for those sins that you don't know about? You haven't repented of them because you don't even know you're doing them. And yet every day you're doing a bunch of sins that you are not repenting of. I was just sharing in my Sunday school class recently. I was with, um, I was with a brother and at a conference and he was, introduced, or he was talking to a friend and he was talking about me. And he said, I remember a few years ago when PJ and I were sitting down and he said, and PJ came up to me and said, okay, okay, brother, why is this racism issue so important? And I was already a pastor for like 10 years at that point, maybe eight years at that point. And when he said that question to my friend as we were talking or to the guy I was just meeting, I felt sort of embarrassed. That would be like a pastor in America preaching regularly week to week and then coming up to another pastor and saying, okay, brother, Tell me why abortion is such a big deal. Why is abortion such a big deal? Because they're murdering babies, right? They're killing babies. It's, a, it's obviously a big deal. But I, uh, that one, that, that race issue wasn't obvious to me as a big deal. It was like a little deal. Oh yeah, it's, it's somewhat important, but it's not around. But abortion, that's huge. And the brother was looking at me sideways like, brother, these are just equally big. And here's my point. I was pastoring for at least eight to 10 years and not pastoring faithfully in regard to that issue. I was sinning and being irresponsible as a pastor. Was I intentionally sinning? Was I like, oh yeah, I know this is wrong, but I, I lack the courage to speak it out to my church. That wasn't the case for me. Now that could be the case for some. My problem was I wasn't even intending to neglect it, but I was. I was unintentionally sinning for years. How many sins have we, I mean, I'm, I shudder to think even as I keep growing in my life, how much more sins I've been doing every year and every day and every month without knowing it. I don't repent of those sins. Why? Because I don't even know about them. How many sins do you not know about in your life? How can we stand before God if God forgives us on the basis of true repentance and faith in Christ? How can we do it when our repentance is so inadequate and so incomplete? I'll tell you why. It's the good news. Jesus repented for us perfectly. He bore our sins on the cross for us perfectly. He repents into the baptism of repentance perfectly for us. Now, brothers, don't get it twisted. That doesn't mean that we don't have to repent now because Jesus did it for us. Oh, great. If Jesus did it for us, I don't have to take my sin seriously. I could just go willy-nilly and I don't have to learn about sins and examine my heart because Jesus repented for me. That's not, that would be a demonic twisting of biblical truth. Because Jesus fulfilled righteousness for us, we should be what? Righteous. Because Jesus was holy for us, we should be holy. Because Jesus repented for us, we should Repent. It's not an excuse to not do it. It's an encouragement and empowering to do it better, to grow in repentance, to grow in learning about your sin, to grow in examining your heart and, and finding the dirt and the evil and the ignorance and the unintentional sins and then just being honest and just putting it out there and being like, Father, forgive me for dishonoring you in this way. Amen. And I can own it in front of other people too. 
Who cares if I get embarrassed by it? Praise God that he convicted me of it. And I, I pray he shows me more. So Jesus repents for us, and this is good news. He restores us from our unrighteousness because he was baptized for us as the son of God. So let's praise God for that. Let's repent quickly. Let's, let's grow in repentance. And, and not only repentance, let me go to the bigger application here before we go to the third point. Jesus is our restoration from unrighteousness because he is Israel's restoration from unrighteousness. So let us go to Jesus for restoration. Just like during the flood, where was your only hope for safety during the flood when the flood was over the whole world? In the ark, right? You go to the ark if you want safety from the judgment. In the same way, all of us are unrighteous. There is none righteous, no, not one. You need to go to Jesus. He's the only one who actually goes into the waters of death and takes it for you so that you don't have to die. Amen. And so let us go to Jesus for our salvation and safety. If you're not a Christian, go to Jesus for your salvation and your safety. Call on him. Trust in him today and talk to me or another Christian here about what it means to follow Jesus or if you trust in Jesus today. Call on him even now and he'll save you. What does this mean for us as as a church? Here's what it means for us as a church. Bethany Baptist Church, listen up. You are not the people of God primarily. I have to say that at the end. You are not the people of God primarily. Jesus is the people of God. You know why you're the people of God? Because you're united to who? Christ. Jesus is the people of God primarily. The only reason you, Bethany Baptist Church, are part of the people of God is because you're united to Jesus. If you disunite from Jesus, you are not part of the people of God. Jesus is the true Israel, and everyone who's united to him will be part of the true people of God. And so, brothers and sisters, let us cling to Christ as a church. Let's always make a big deal about Jesus and a small deal about everyone and everything else. Christian, rest secure in the fact that God is pleased with Jesus and you're in Jesus. He is well pleased with Jesus. He loves Jesus. So if you want to be loved by God, don't rest in how good you're doing, how pleasing you are, rest in Jesus. Here's what Richard Sibb says. He says a word to those who fear they have no faith at all. Any of you doubting your faith, doubting your salvation, listen to this. Cast yourself into the arms of Christ and if you perish, perish there. If you don't, you are sure to perish. If mercy is to be found anywhere, it is there. Go to Christ. Christ, the sure and steady anchor. When the tempest rages on, when temptation, you're you're tempted to sin, when temptation claims the battle and it seems the night has won because you just sinned, deeper still then goes the anchor. Though I justly stand accused, I will hold fast to the anchor it shall never be removed. Amen. Jesus is our anchor. He's our hope. He's the one who restores us from our, our unrighteousness. So Jesus fulfills all righteousness. He restores us from our unrighteousness. And lastly, see in God's son, the servant king who brings the hope of righteousness. I think this is the main echo, the main sound you're supposed to hear from the Old Testament. That Jesus is the servant king who brings the hope of righteousness. What do we mean by that? Let's go back to these two phrases again. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We're going off these two because this is where the echoes mainly are. Okay. In whom I am well pleased. There's another echo of in whom I'm well pleased. You guys are in Jeremiah still, right? Go to Isaiah. Back to Isaiah to the left. Or just listen. Isaiah 42.1. Isaiah 42.1. In whom I am well pleased or in whom I delight in. You have another idea here in Isaiah 42. Listen to this. It says this in Isaiah 42, verse one. This is my servant. That's why I call him the servant king. This is my servant. I strengthen him. This is my chosen one. I delight in him. I am well pleased in him. Not the same Greek word here, but the same idea. I delight in him. I have put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. Here's why I talk about righteousness, hope of righteousness. Because what is he going to bring to the nations? Justice, what's another word for justice? Righteousness. Justice and righteousness are just two different ways of saying the same word. We think of justice as more social and righteousness as more personal, but you can think about personal justice and social righteousness. It's the same word. It's doing what's right and upholding what's right, whether it's corporately and socially 
or personally. <coughs> Excuse me. So, so this is the servant. He's going to bring righteousness. Now, what is, let's read on in Isaiah 42. Look at verse 2. Look at how he's going to bring this righteousness, social righteousness to the nations. He will not cry out or shout or make his voice heard in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed and he will not put out a smoldering wick. He will faithfully bring justice. What does that mean he's not going to break a bruised reed? He's not going to impatiently just take his sword and start whacking people. He's going to shepherd and gently, a bruised reed, he's going to, he's going to, he's going to shepherd carefully and, and heal together. And then a smoldering wick, He's not going to put it out. He's not going to blow it out. There's that little, you know when you, have a, you light a match or you light something on fire and the, fire goes, the flame goes out, but there's a smoldering wick still. There's a glow. Instead of blowing it out, he's going to blow on it gently to bring it back into a what? Into a flame. So Jesus is going to bring about this righteousness for the nations, not by just beating people over the head and saying, be righteous, be righteous, be righteous. But he's going to shepherd them gently. This is quoted in Matthew 12. So, so Matt, this is, this, Isaiah 42 is in Matthew's mind. It's in Matthew 12, 18 to 21. But here, notice he's going to bring justice gently. He will not grow weak or be discouraged until he established justice where? On earth. What about all the other nations, all the other islands? What about them? The coast and islands will do what? What will they do with this servant who's bringing justice? They will wait for his what? They want to learn from him. They want to follow him. Whoever this servant is, he's going to bring justice, righteousness to all the nations and all the nations, people from every nation is going to want to learn from this servant. So who is this servant in whom God is well-pleased? Well, if you're at the baptism, who's that servant who's got, in whom God's well-pleased? Jesus is the servant who's going to bring the hope of righteousness. If you were in Israel and you were oppressed by the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, and then the Medo-Persians, and then the Greeks, and then the Roman Empire and you've just been longing for the days of Solomon and David, and you feel like this slavery and this oppression has been going on forever, and now all of a sudden you hear the king is coming, what do you want him to bring? You're not thinking about a cross. You're thinking about bring righteousness. Get these oppressors off of us. Bring us freedom. Bring us justice. That all the nations will recognize that Israel is your people. That's what they were hoping for. And here he is the one who's going to do it. He's the servant in whom all this righteousness the hope of righteousness will come, the hope of justice in salvation through judgment and restoration. And notice in verse one again, the one I delight in him, I have put my what on him? What does God put on the servant in, verse four, in chapter 42, verse one? His what? His spirit. What did you see at the baptism? Who descended on Jesus? The spirit. This, so it's a spirit-empowered working of righteousness and justice. The spirit descended on Jesus the Spirit is given to bring justice and restore Israel. The Spirit is also in, in Isaiah 11, verse 2, where it says that um, the Spirit will be put on, not the servant. Look at Isaiah 11, 2. We're going to go to the other quote in a second, but just go to Isaiah 11 real quick. We're done with Isaiah 42. Go to Isaiah 11. The Spirit of Yahweh will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and a fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see. He will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears, but he will judge the poor righteously, and he'll execute justice or righteousness for the oppressed of the land. He will strike the land with the scepter of his mouth. He will kill the wicked with a command from his lips. Righteousness will be a belt around his hips. Faithfulness will be a belt around his waist. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf, the young lion, the fattened calf will be together and the child will lead them. There's going to be no more animals that are wild. There's going to be perfect peace, perfect harmony. What does that sound like? A new heavens and a new earth. This, this one with the spirit in him is going to execute judgment and bring in perfect righteousness and the kingdom. And is it just for the people of Israel? Look at verse 10. On that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for, for the who? Peoples, the nations will look to him for guidance. That just sounds like Isaiah 42, right? The nations will look to him for guidance and his resting place will be glorious. So this person in Isaiah 11 is going to have the spirit and he's going to execute justice gently and firmly, but he's not called the servant in Isaiah 11. What is he called in verse one? I didn't read verse one. What is he called in verse one? The shoot will grow from where? The stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The stump of Jesse? Who's Jesse? The father of David. And this is the stump of Jesse. So he's in Jesse's line and he's in David's line. This is the Davidic king. Amen. The servant of Isaiah 42 is going to execute justice in the power of the Spirit. 
for all nations to get instruction. The Davidic king is going to have the Holy Spirit and execute justice for all nations to receive instruction. Hmm, same person? Maybe, maybe not. Isaiah doesn't, doesn't connect them, but we're thinking, you know. Well, and it is connected because we go to Psalm 2. Last, last New Old Testament passage. Last Old Testament passage I'm going to have you turn to. I'll quote one more later, but Psalm 2. Go to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. So we, in whom I'm well pleased... So with the Holy Spirit here, you have a hint. I, I noticed this on Wednesday night talking to some people, so I might as well point out here. Did you notice the Trinity in the baptism? Yes. The Father speaking from heaven. Where's the Son? In the what? In the water. And then who's the third person of the Trinity? The Spirit who descends. Okay, so you see there's a hint of the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, God the Son. But that's not the point, I think, when you read Matthew. Not, not the deity of Christ, but the fact that he's Israel and he's the Davidic king, the servant king. Why? Because it's not just in whom I will please. This is my beloved son. This is my son. You know when Mark and Luke quote this baptism, they don't say, this is my son. You know what they say? You are my son. The voice came from heaven saying, you are my son. Why does Matthew say, this is my son? Because he's, he's presenting Jesus to others. But Mark and Luke probably have the exact, so it's not, they're not doing exact quotes the way we do it today, like verbatim. But for Mark and Luke, they probably were closer to verbatim and saying, you are my beloved son. You are my son. Now look at Psalm 2.7. What does Psalm 2.7 say? I will declare Yahweh's decree. He said to me, what did God say to me? The psalmist says, you are my son. Today I have become your father. What is Psalm 2 about? It's an enthronement psalm. It's when the, it's when the, the Davidic king is now crowned king at his coronation. It's the public display of the king. Today I have become your father because you have now become the Davidic king. You are the prince. Your dad was on the throne. Now your dad's gone. You are enthroned now. And today as you're declared king, you are my son. Today I have become your father by your crowning as king. In Psalm 2, and what is Psalm 2 about? It's about the son ruling over the nations. Look at verse, so he rule, he's, the, he's the Messiah. In verse 2, the son is called the anointed one. That's the Messiah. In verse Eight and nine, he's going to rule and dominate the nations. Look at verse 10. What's the application to us and to everyone in the world, all the nations? So now, kings, what should you do? Be wise. What should you receive? Instruction, you judges of the earth. Just like it said in Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 11, receive instruction. And what should you do? Serve Yahweh with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. And then what's verse 12? Here's the main command, I would say. What should you do in verse 12? Pay homage to who? The son. What does it literally say, King James Version? What should you do to the son? Kiss the son. Kiss the ring. Bow down. Recognize that I'm the king. The son of God is the king of Israel. He's the king. Kiss the son. Bow down and recognize and submit to my kingship. Pay homage to the son. Or what? What if you don't pay homage to the son? What if I say, forget the Messiah. Forget God's son. Forget the Davidic king. Then what? He will be angry and you will what? Perish in your rebellion, for his anger may ignite at any moment. All who take refuge in him are happy. This is another way of saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. You better kiss the Son. Pay homage to the Son, the Anointed One, the Messiah, God's Davidic King. If you do not pay homage to this Son, if you do not trust in Jesus, if you do not bow and call Jesus your Lord, but continue in your rebellion, you will perish you will die in hell forever for your sins but you don't have to all you have to do is recognize jesus as the anointed one the messiah the davidic king the king of israel the king of the nations the son of god and when you see him as the one who's going to restore the hope of righteousness for the whole world and bring in the final kingdom of god trust and honor him he is the king like an evil and murderous nation or like an evil and murderous war instigating rebellion being dominated by a righteous king who comes in and dominates and puts out the rebellion the king stands up and declares peace to all the rebels who will lay down their arms and submit to me pay loyalty honor and homage to me and you will live like a like a righteous and loving king who dominates a rebellious group, Jesus comes to the nations and says, peace to those who will have peace.
So Christian, what should we do? We need to gladly obey and submit to Christ. If you're not a Christian, you need to submit to Christ. And as a church family, we need to be the display. What does God's family who's under Christ's rule look like? It looks like Bethany Baptist Church. You're saying, well, well, we're not a perfect picture. Well, we're not. But if you want to see what a people looks like under the righteous and loving rule of the king, look at churches. Churches are supposed to be the display of joyful submission to God. And you know, brothers and sisters, Bethany Baptist Church, I want to encourage you. This church family is a sweet church family. I love our church family. I love the interaction and the way that we encourage each other and pray for each other. And we're not perfect. We need to grow in a lot of ways. But you, brothers and sisters, have submitted to the king and have done it together in a way that is a model to other churches. And I'm grateful for you. You evidence it. But here's my point. I don't want you to think of Son of God. When you see Son of God in Matthew, I don't want you to think God the Son, fully God. That's true, but that's not what he's saying here. What do I want you to think? True Israel, true Davidic king, the servant king. Okay? That's what I want you to think. So um, how does this, let's close with this. We'll close now. How does this servant king bring about the hope of righteousness? I mean, he just crowned the king and now all of a sudden righteousness comes? No, that's not how. We get a clue by the immersion in water and what that symbolizes. But not only that, there's one more Old Testament echo, just a faint echo, maybe way in the back. But I want to pull it out to the front, at least just for our our closing here. This is my beloved Son. There's one other Old Testament phrase where it says, my beloved son. It's a story where God says, Abraham, take your beloved son, your only son, and sacrifice him. Take the son whom you love, your beloved son, the son of promise, the son of promise of blessing to the nations. I want you to take him and take him to the Mount, Mount Moriah, which is Jerusalem. I want you to take him to the mountain of Jerusalem, and I want you to sacrifice him there. And so, this beloved son, the son of promise, is about to be sacrificed. And I want you to sacrifice him there. And I want you to trust my bigger plan and purpose for the hope of final blessing to the nations. And so Abraham is there. He puts his son there, Isaac, on the altar. He raises up the dagger to, to, to kill his son. The son willingly lays down in perfect submission and he's about to kill his son and sacrifice his son. And then an angel says, stop. Now I know. And what did, what did uh, earlier Abraham or Isaac said to his dad, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham said, God will provide. As he's about to kill, God stops him. What, what do they see in the, in the thicket? A ram. a ram stuck. They take the ram. They sacrifice the ram in the place of the son. That sounds like another story, doesn't it? Sounds like the father declaring his son, the promised son of blessing and, and, and sacrificing him for the bigger plan. What's the difference though? In Genesis 22, it was an almost sacrifice of the son. This one is an actual sacrifice of the son. In Genesis 22, the ram was actually sacrificed, but that sacrifice is not effective to cover sins. But this sacrifice of the lamb of God, Jesus the son, that effectively covers sins and atones for sins. And in this one, um, The father's making the sacrifice. In this one, it's not just the father. The son willingly trusts God in making the sacrifice. And so we we see Jesus get the victory here. He is the servant king. I mean, isn't that what, what, what does he say about being a servant in Matthew 20, 28? The son of man did not come. The son of man who's the king, who has authority. The son of man did not come to be served, but to what? Serve Serve and give his life as a Ransom. ransom for many. So we sing, crown him, crown him, because he dies on the cross to secure the hope of righteousness for all of us. So to summarize, brothers and sisters, when I say you need hope to give hope to others, you need to see Jesus as God's son who fulfills all righteousness as the true Israel and the true Davidic king. When you see Jesus that way, you can have hope. Are any of you discouraged? Any of you having a hard week or a hard month or a hard few years? Anyone feeling hopeless, overwhelmed by negativity, brokenness, sin, and or the curse? Turn your eyes upon Jesus and hope in him today. Look full on his wonderful face. And this week, when you feel hopeless and discouraged or pessimistic, find the rock-solid hope 
of the Son of God and then give that hope to others. God's Son, Jesus, true Israel and true Davidic King, is actively reversing the curse in your life now. And he will one day do it comprehensively when he comes again, just as certainly as he did in creating the universe and rising from the dead. If you, brothers and sisters, so here's the final call. Hope in God. Hope in Jesus, the one who brings your hope. And then give that hope to others. If you don't do this, you will be swallowed up by sin and brokenness. You will constantly be discouraged and negative. And sadly, um, you'll cover the pain and brokenness of your life with cheap, happy thoughts. Joel Osteen-isms, perhaps, or other positive thinking theories that are based on fantasy and not on biblical truth. And then you will drag other people down around you with your hopelessness and negativity. Rather than doing that and hiding God from others with your negativity, if you hope in God, you will find deep and solid confidence in Jesus by the power of God's Spirit. You will have hope, true hope, and you will be grateful and realistically optimistic. And when you hang out with other people, you can actually give them hope, real positive, true hope. So hope in God's Son, our servant king, the true representative, the true people of God. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for Jesus Christ, your Son whom you love. True Israel, true Davidic King, true Savior, true Lord, our only hope in this world. We pray that you would help us to trust in him, to lean on him, to hope in him, and to spread that hope to others in our church and through our church to a dying world here in Southeast Los Angeles County and to all the nations. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.